This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 67 of The History Files, coming to you from the last week of August 2016. This week, things have been a little topsy-turvy around here since I was away in California for some family stuff, and Nancy was helping our friend Sarah sort through her late husband's monster model collection, which is almost worthy of an episode itself. Kaiju have been around long enough to be considered historical, no? Anyway... In the meanwhile, you can always check out episode 74 of Coffee with Jeff if you want some Godzilla history. Okay, so one of the topsy-turvy things about this week's episode is I am going to be the interviewer, and I'm going to interview Gordon, because this week's topic is cavalry. One of the re- ancillary reasons that Gordon drove hundreds of miles south in the hottest tar- part of the year was to retrieve his jousting kit, his armor, saddles, tentage, etc., from a friend who was hanging on to them for him in Sacramento. For those of you newly acquainted with Mr. Fry, he's a cavalry enthusiast from way back. Now, just how far back is something we'll get into in a bit, because today our special guest on the show is, in fact, Gordon. So we're going to talk about cavalry. Mostly this was prompted by uh, Lindy Beige's recent YouTube rant on cavalry. And maybe we'll do a video response to it someday when we knock the Bad Cat YouTube channel into shape. We'll see about that. At any rate, today we're, we're just going to do it in the form of a Q&A session. But before we get into all that, let's take a look at what's going on currently in various media. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. There's a new trailer up for the upcoming release of Magnificent, the remake of The Magnificent Seven. It, in fact, there's two new trailers up, and I'll have links to those in the show notes. I'm really excited about this movie, and we will be doing a show on it probably, I don't know if we're going to do it here or over on Gordon's Gun Closet. Well, it'll depend on what the movie's like. Um, also, HBO is has developed a new series based on the Michael Crichton novel and film of the same name, Westworld. Uh, you may remember it from 70-something, starring Yule Brynner. And he's in both, he was in both the originals that we're talking about. Of course, he's in Magnificent Seven. Oh, was too. there a sequel to the Westworld movie? No, but movie? he's in, well, yes, but he was also in Magnificent Seven. Oh, that's right. So it's all about Yul Brynner today. Exactly. Yeah. Bald guys. Yeah. <laughs> so that trailer for Westworld looks amazing. It's Anthony Hopkins, Ed Harris. I mean, they've got some A-listers to do this thing. And I'm sorry it's on HBO. We don't get HBO, but it'll be we'll be able to find it somehow. So more impressive than Richard Benjamin? Wasn't he in Westworld? Richard Benjamin. Boy, there's a name I haven't heard in a while. Because he's the, married to Paula. What's her name anyway? They had a TV show way back in the 60s. Oh, wow. I, yeah. only, I only barely remember. Yeah. Well, I love Michael Crichton. And, you know, I've never seen the original Westworld. I guess we should watch it sometime. It's really a neat movie. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Um, next up, we ha- we go to YouTube. And this is what spawned today's episode. For uh, Lindy Beige has a couple of new things out this week. This last week, uh, he had a nice interview with a couple of sword makers uh, where he sat them down at Visby and talked about making reproduction medieval swords. He's got, oh, I can't think of the guy's name, the first name, but it's uh, his last name is Lion. He's in uh, Kiwi. He did swords for Lord of the Rings. So Jeffrey? Jeffrey, I With don't... With the G? Uh, maybe. Big, tall, bald, another bald guy. And then a guy from Sweden who also whose name I can't remember. Um, but anyway, another fine, fine sword maker. And they talk about 
the 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 whys and wherefores of making reproduction swords are you making it to be an exact reproduction with an edge are you making it to be used as a prop in a film so it has to look right but be a blunt weapon so it handles right and handles realistically but you don't hurt yourself or you know anyway really it was it's a really interesting conversation and i think he's going to continue that in the future and he also lindy beige did a sort of a rant on cavalry he calls it something like cavalry why, why is, cavalry is stupid why cavalry is stupid and it really he i i think he could rephrase that because he really talks about early proto-cavalry and how unlikely and inexplicable it is that that what we think of as cavalry ever developed and his reasons why. And that's going to be our main topic today. History lives again. So today our special guest is Gordon Fry. Ta-da! <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? So we're going to talk... Uh, mainly again in response to Lindy Beige, about cavalry. Now, Gordon, when did you first become interested in cavalry? I don't know. I think I was three or four. I've got a great picture of me, and I'm pretty sure I'm four. Um, I'm on a little pony. Uh, I'm wearing my cowboy hat, my red cowboy hat, and I have my Confederate cavalry belt and holster and pistol on. And... um, Saddle shoes and argyle socks. It's a cute picture. We'll, we'll try and find it and put it on put it on the, the web. Maybe we'll use it as a header picture if I can find it. But I've, I've liked horses and cavalry since I was way little. So um, after the age of four and through the rest of your life, what has been your experience with horse cavalry? Well, I didn't really get back into it uh, seriously until I think it was... 1987 or so, uh, I got invited to be on um, Rambo 3 as a cavalryman. And I really wanted to do it, so I decided I better brush up on this, so I took a bunch of lessons. A cavalryman of what nationality? We were Afghans. We were part of the Northern Alliance, rescuing Rambo from the Russians. And there are some pretty fun cavalry charges in there. The little pony that I was riding that belonged to the 7th Illinois Cavalry, a reenactment group out of, guess where, Illinois, under my buddy Carl Luthen. Uh, this was a polo pony, and he had no problems running into other horses, running me into the bank of an armored, the back of an armored personnel carrier. I mean, he really didn't have any fear of anything, except huge gasoline explosions. That right. he didn't like. Yeah, most horses don't care for, for big balls of flame and hissing things and exploding yeah. things. With that one, I did end up in the dirt. Oh, well, it happens. Sometimes, too many times. But that was my first really big experience with, well, we had 200 cavalrymen and horses in that one. So your first cavalry experiences was on, a cavalry experience was on a movie set. Actually, yes. Yeah. And that seems to become a recurring theme for the next couple of decades. It does. I was somewhat involved with doing local Civil War reenactment in Northern California, but not too much. Most of my real cavalry experience was done on film. So since I was paid for it, that makes me a professional. That's right. That's right. Well, and I tell you what, what after being People say, well, that was just a movie. That's not the real cavalry. Yes and no. I mean, there's no real bullets, and you're not really killing people. But you're working six days a week. Mm -hmm. You're in the saddle 12 to 14 hours a day, working with tens and tens, sometimes hundreds of other guys on horses. It's organized like an army. Absolutely. You've got your your captains and your sergeants. And and of necessity, because when you're directing a movie with lots of guys on horses and and, and also lots of infantry people, Mm -hmm. you need to organize it like an army or you're never going to get your shots. It's going to be chaos. Absolutely. Like uh, on, for example, Ride with the Devil, which was a marvelous movie about the Civil War, directed by Ang Lee, we had at our the the uh, largest uh, numbers that we had our, our surge, I guess you would call it. I think we had close to three hundred men and horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like two hundred and seventy something, and 
We had it uh, organized like a battalion, and there was a battalion under our leader, the fellow, this uh, marvelous fellow Riley Flynn. Uh, I was one of the company commanders, and we had five companies. My company had 63 men in it, and I broke it into two separate platoons, and each one of my platoons had a lieutenant. I was me, and James Marks was my sergeant, my first sergeant. Then each of the platoons had a lieutenant and a platoon sergeant, and each had about 30 guys in it. And then they had those platoons broken down into sections or, or squads, and it works beautifully. You just say... You, Lieutenant, take your platoon off and do this. And it was totally military. Now, of course, nowadays they get maybe 20, 30 guys, and then they do cut and paste with CGI to make these big armies. But right. but 20 years ago, if you wanted yeah. to have 300 guys or 200 guys on screen doing something military-looking, you got 200, 300 guys on screen. Yes. And... Those days are gone, and, and you got in on the very tail end of that, basically. I did, actually, the, the, the real high point of it, mm-hmm. because movies like, um, well, Rambo 3, we mm-hmm. had well over 200 men and horses on, um, uh, what was it, uh, Back to the Future Part 3, mm-hmm. we had over 100, and we did cavalry charges um, over and over and over, not just for the film, but also for the sound. Sound guys had us do a bunch of cavalry charges too. Oh, and too. you just drive, ride by them, <clears throat> just charge them. at them oh, and stuff. Sure. And it was it was absolute hoot. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right. Because the first one of the, or not the very first scene, but when he first goes back in time, in Back to the Future Three, he right. lands right in front of the oh, cavalry chasing the Indians. Exactly. And there's this cow, and that was the whole. You know, we were there for what three minutes uh, at on best screen. on screen, and it took us you know, I don't know two or three weeks to film it. But um, yeah, it, it was it was it was great, and I learned a lot about cavalry and and movement mm-hmm. um, from well, Ray Herbeck is the guy that got me involved first in in the films, and he hired me to do Rambo three or pardon me, yes, Rambo three, and Back to the Future three, and then Riley Flynn, who had been a company commander on that, he ended up taking over the reins, as it were. Uh, But these gentlemen taught me exactly how horses have to move in order to do a cavalry charge. You have to start off at the walk. Mm -hmm. In order to keep your unit cohesion, like if you've got a big long line of even one rank or two ranks or three, you have to start off at a walk. Mm -hmm. And then the company commander or whatever the unit commander looks to make sure everybody's at the same speed and in line, then you can kick it up to a trot. Everybody's at the same speed. Then you can kick it up to a canter. And then if you're going to do a real all-out charge, then you can say charge, gallop, and all this, and then everybody goes flying. And even at the charge, you're trying to keep a line. You're trying to keep your cohesion because you want to have... In real battle, you want to have every bit of your line hitting at the exact same moment right. to, for the maximum shock. In so many movies, you look and it just by the t- when they're filming, they don't know. They, they don't, don't know. and especially in earlier films, they haven't had people to to consult with, and and a lot of times all they have are wranglers right. as their cavalry, and they don't know. And it's a gaggle, and it looks like into a cavalry person like yourself, it looks like poo. Right. And it's embarrassing. Now, this is very interesting. I, I do not watch Game of Thrones. But my daughter and son-in-law had me watch the this big yes. ultimate battle. Yeah, I heard there was a really big, amazing battle, like the finale or right, a couple finale. episodes and before the finale. They did a good job. Oh, good. I was very impressed with how they kept that cavalry line intact. They had cohesion, and they all hit at the same moment. Now, once it... They hit the infantry. I mean, it, all hell broke loose, and all cohesion was lost, and it became a standard, you know, melee. A melee. But I was very impressed that for their charge, they actually kept these horses in a fairly decent line. And I did hear uh, on other podcasts, who people who are fans of Game of Thrones, that there is almost no CG 
in right. in that battle scene. They did everything practical, and and that it gave it a lot of verisimilitude, and you really feel like you're there. Yeah, so that was, was really nice. It was very very well done. I was impressed from a professional standpoint as a movie cavalry. Uh, Military Not just background, military background, yeah. but you know, also advisor. Mm-hmm. Boom! They did a good job. Nice, nice. So you have a lot of movie background, of course. Like we say nowadays, mm-hmm. the the um, the heyday of North American movie cavalry kind of went away. It became mm-hmm. too expensive. We see yep. a lot of runaway production. A lot of stuff went to Canada. Yep. And elsewhere, and then with Lord of, Lord of the Rings, a lot of things have gone to New Zealand, right. where they filmed down there. And one of my troopers actually, that's right, uh, became a ring wraith. Yep, and he, was he came, went off the set of the Patriot and flew to New Zealand and j- jumped yes. right into Lord of the Rings. Justin Taylor, yeah, and I was very impressed. As he did a good job. He'd come right out of the Marine Corps, started working for me on the Patriot, and then went off and worked on Lord yeah. of the Rings. Yeah, he talked. That's that's grabbing life by the by the know, horns. <laughs> yeah, by the horns. There you go. That sounds better. Yes. Yeah, he did it. He did a great job and he has some fun stories about doing that. Now it's a lot of CG. Everything either goes to the Czech Republic or wherever. Or New Zealand or wherever. Yeah, and it's just too expensive to get actual physical cavalry anymore. It was very difficult doing that then too though. Uh, yeah, where where do you get experienced cavalry guys obviously they're not just extras that are handed a horse when they show up obviously not yeah exactly um one of my jobs was as um what they call a reenactor coordinator on the patriot the film the patriot and it came out in 2000 with mel gibson and the producers had said well why should we spend all this money on bringing these reenactors these civil war reenactors and Revel War reenactors from all over the country at great expense mm-hmm. when we can just hire some locals. Yeah, we'll just get local horse people, horse guys to come right. in and do. And so Riley said, okay, let's do that. And so they put ads in the papers, ads all around, and a bunch of people showed up. Most of them were women, and there's mm-hmm. nothing... Women are fantastic riders, mm-hmm. but they just don't look like men when they're on yeah, horseback. Fu- funny thing. Uh, women look like women on horseback. Men look like men. Women have longer legs and shorter bodies. Uh, you can tell the difference. If you know, if you have any inkling of what you're looking at, you say, well, that's a woman. Uh, and that's one problem. Yeah, the look, other, look at Lord of the Rings sometime. A lot of those Rohirrim, the writers of Rohan. Those are, those are girls. Most of them are women with beards glued on. Yep. Yeah. And they did a great job. Yeah. Good Fine, fine horsemen. Well, it helps that they had to wear armor and pad it out and helmets, and so they could hide it. Um, In fact, actually, we did have two women riding with us on the Patriot, and one of them was on the equestrian team at West Point. (laughs) (laughs) She knew how to ride. She knew how to ride, and the other was just a fantastic rider, but they were both, both very, very slender women. Yeah. Fairly tall, very slender women. I remember those two days of auditions, though, for right. get, trying to get local riders. And like Gordon says, it was almost all women. I think there, there were two men. Two men, and they were on borrowed horses, and they really didn't know how to ride. They could not ride. And then one of the things was that um, they had to do an obstacle course. Mm-hmm. And most of those horses would not do the obstacle course. Uh, and side passing, uh, crossing logs, all kinds right. of things. It, yeah, when he says obstacle course, it wasn't like they had to do a steeplechase. No. This was simple things like stand in a box, step over a log, back up, S- turn back around. Up, turn around, side yeah. pass, step over cords because there are electrical cords everywhere on a movie set. Yeah. And a horse has to be able to negotiate this stuff. Tent ropes, you're going to walk through, around, you have to make sure your horse doesn't get Go get tangled in tent ropes. There's a million little things that a movie horse has to be able to do. And we have found that horses that are used to reenactments, they're used to cannons going off. They're used to people shooting. And crowds and crazy and crowds stuff. And, yeah, just, and just crazy stuff. Flags blowing in the wind. You'd be flags. surprised how many horses freak out when somebody opens an umbrella right. or a breeze catches a flag or a woman's skirt. Right, and go, ah! Yeah. And horses that have experience at this stuff at reenactments are generally the best ones Mm -hmm. to use. They make good movie horses. They make good movie horses. But anyway, Riley proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that by showing these guys, they had to look, show up, watch this. 
they can't do this. Right. Nothing wrong with them as riders, but they just don't have the experience. Their horses didn't have the experience. And so... Did he, um, did he get anybody out of those auditions? I yeah, think we he... got one guy, and he was uh, he was a vet. <laughs> he was well, that's handy. Yeah, it was handy. Nice to have a vet. But he was a veterinarian, and so he was sort of, he wasn't there every day. He was sort of our on-call guy to come out when okay. we needed somebody. Sure. And he was great. He did a great job, but he was the one that we got locally. So what was the last cavalry movie you worked on? The last big one was uh, the Alamo. It was like 2003. Oh, the Disney Alamo. Disney Alamo. The Dennis Quaid one. Yes. Yes. And you should listen to the historian's track on that. Oh, it's very, right. very good. Yeah. Uh, the commentary track for the Alamo. Uh, not, I think there's probably more than one commentary track, but you want the one with the historical advisors. Right. And with, uh, uh, Alan Huffines mm-hmm. and Steve Harden. Yeah. That's a, so listen that's to that. Important. There's some really good information in there. Okay. Now back to Lindy Beige by the long way around. So now you know what Gordon's, some of what Gordon's cavalry. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but we're gonna we're gonna try and cut to the chase here. So Lindy Beige's video, "Why Cavalry Is Stupid," it really should be renamed. It should be called something like, "Given the limitations of early horses, it's a wonder cavalry ever happened." He talks about proto cavalry, and. And basically stops before you get to real cavalry. Well, he he doesn't actually. He gets into cavalry, but the problem is, is he doesn't really go through the um, the evolution because he does talk about how the very first horse stuff in warfare was with chariots. Mm-hmm. And okay, you have small horses. Horses, uh, a horse to three thousand, four thousand years ago was pretty dinky. Uh, in fact, it was the Asiatic. Uh, uh, donkeys, the the asses that were the very first equines that were used that were um, that were used domestically for pulling and, things. for pulling stuff, you know, for chariots. But um, because they were actually a little bigger, but then they started breeding horses up, and they were used to as as war animals to to pull chariots. Um, Lindy Beige, unfortunately, the guy has incredibly limited experience with horses. Yeah. And he doesn't realize that a horse, just like a man, has to be trained yeah. to, to battle. You don't just hand a guy a spear and say, here, go kill him. Yeah. One of his first arguments is that horses are skittish and don't want people riding them. It's like, well, that's true, especially if it's an unbroken horse. But a horse that's been trained... Absolutely different. ...is fine with somebody riding him. Also, you know, he talks about, you know, Fighting from horseback is nigh on impossible. Well, that's true if you're trying to fight like an infantryman. Right. Well, also, my contention is that the first person to ride a horse or any of these equines was probably an 11 or 12-year-old boy. And there's this gaggle of boys that were leading their father's horses down to the river to, to drink. And on the way back... Some little boy said, double dog dare you, you can't get on there and ride it. And he said, and he said oh yeah, watch I this. Can. Yeah, exactly, watch <laughs> this. And he gets on there and he goes lickety split, as just boom, all hell With breaks the horse loose. horse freaking out. Horse mm-hmm. freaks out, kid goes, and he comes off and rolls five or six times and jumps off. And everybody giggles and laughs and thinks this is the coolest thing ever. Do it again. Said, Let's do this again. And those 12-year-old boys grow up knowing how to ride horses. Mm-hmm. And that spreads from there. Mm-hmm. You start off with some absolutely immortal little boy mm-hmm. who does something incredibly stupid. And it's like, hey, this works. Those horses were too small for a grown man. Mm-hmm. But with a breeding program, which we know they did, the horses get bigger. Um, the thing, too, that Lindy Beige avoids talking about is that the first cavalrymen spent all their time in the saddle. They were herdsmen. They weren't farmers. Right. These were herdsmen who used those animals uh, as part of their job, just like they used their dogs to herd the animals. They used the horses that they rode to herd these animals, just like the Mongols do, just like cowboys do. I was going to say, if you want to see people still doing that with similar-sized horses, mm-hmm. you go to northern China and look at these nomadic tribes people mm-hmm. who are still using their horses. They are doing falconry from horseback. With eagles. <laughs> with eagles. With eagles. The eagles oh, the size my. of their horses. Just yes. They're hunting wolves They're doing with eagles. mounted archery. They're doing all this stuff on teeny little horses. Now, granted, these guys aren't 6'5", but no, still. Some of them are. But yeah, you look at the, the footage of these guys, and their feet are pretty close to the ground. 
those guys living in Mongolia are big men. Mm -hmm. They're much taller than the southern Asians. Yeah, I know. Lindy Beige gets to a point where he says, you know, you horses are better for pulling things. You know, some big guy in heavy armor can't get... Well, now he's mixing his metaphors, yeah, basically, absolutely. because the proto-cavalry, the early cavalry, we hadn't they got didn't. to big guys in big armor right. yet. They weren't doing that, but they were using bows. And the thing is, when you have the recurve bow, the com, you know, the, 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 the compound bows that are, um, you know, with... Uh, with the Asiatic mm -hmm. bow, you have an enormous amount of power, and they used it differently than we moderns use an English longbow. They kept the, and I've tried this. You use a longbow using it like a modern target shooter. Uh, you tr go to draw the arrow, and it falls off because the wind blows it off. The it's on the left side of the bow. Mm -hmm. You hold it with your thumb to the right side, and it works fine. Mm. And those guys knew what they were doing. If you look at some of the original um, artwork, there's guys with three arrows at a time literally doing this. Do they do they loose all three arrows at once, or they just have them ready? They just have them ready, and thung, thung, thung. Oh. And these guys are... There's actually a guy in Sweden who's been doing amazing things with uh, with arrows. And this guy can do all of the things that that mythology said an, uh, an archer could do and everybody said no you can't this is silly he does them i will find that and put it in the show notes. it is amazing yeah i've, I've seen him it just it's pretty blows awesome. your mind um and horsemen traditionally everywhere other than western europe were also archers and so you have a projectile weapon you don't have to be an armored man to use a projectile no. weapon and the first real cavalry were this so I was. This is one of my questions. So was early cavalry mostly archery or thrown spears kind of thing? It, Javelin it, spears. Yeah, it depended upon where you were. Some places, um, northern Middle East and like Iran, and parts east and north, definitely archers. Arabs, North Africans tended to be javelin throwers because there's not a lot of good um, wood and stuff, materials for good bows. Mm. So they tended to be javelin throwers, and that actually morphed itself and, and went into Spain. So even as late as the early 16th century, the Spaniards were still throwing spears. Their light cavalry, huh. their jinetes, were still throwing javelins from horseback, which they adopted from the Arabs. Okay, so now when do we start to see stirrups and where? Well, probably China, probably around the 4th century, Mm -hmm. early 5th century A.D. Um, stirrups are not necessary, but they're awfully handy. The reason for this is that it helps a person who isn't born in the saddle to be able to stand in the stirrups and deliver a blow. It's not so you can lean over. It's not so you can really get on a horse yeah it helps it's for us lazy people you don't need a stirrup to get on a horse no. but it, you can stand up and deliver a blow with a sword or you can use those stirrups to push yourself back against the cancel of the or pardon me yeah the cancel mm -hmm. the, the back of the of the saddle to brace yourself when you're delivering the blow from a couched lance, the lance that's held under the arm. Like when you're jousting. Like when you're jousting, you put your stirrups forward, you brace yourself, and it allows you to hit harder and break the lance, knock the and other guy off. And not get popped out of the saddle. not get popped out of the saddle. So stirrups, stirrups are not necessarily for riding. In fact, when you're taught to ride, mm -hmm. you have to earn your stirrups. Yeah. I've seen and experienced a lot of riding lessons where it's like, no, you're not using those stirrups and you're going to post without those stirrups right. and you are going to do everything that you need to do without stirrups because yep. that's going to teach you to have a good seat. Exactly. Lose your irons. Yeah. You know, take your feet out of those stirrups and go. Yeah. I've actually jumped my old horse taxi without stirrups. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that saddle was too small and the stirrups were too short. The stirrup leathers were too short, and so you he, were just, just he decided to free jump. Free-footing it. We were free-footing it. I stayed on. So it is possible, then, to fight from horseback without stirrups. Absolutely. Now, did, didn't the Plains Indians do that? Did yeah. They, did they, they didn't have stirrups on their Depends. Saddles some did, some or? didn't. Some preferred to not use a saddle in war. Okay. A lot of them just had a, a either a blanket or nothing, and they would be... Uh, 
They would not wear their leggings. It would be bare-legged on a bare-backed horse. And that's what they did out of preference. The Comanches were really known for this. Hmm. Interesting. So most of his arguments, unfortunately, are balderdash. Well, they're coming from a well-intentioned individual who is, it's obvious he has very little experience with horses and no experience with a trained war horse. Right. When he talks about horses being timid and shying at a, at a crisp bag or whatever, it's like, well, yeah, if you're riding some poor little trail horse, some saddle horse, and I've had this happen just doing trail rides. Oh, it's a plastic bag. Mm-hmm. My life is over. And they jump sideways or they, or they just stop and they won't go through the mud puddle or right. they won't step over the piece of wire. It, but I've also had the experience, me, untrained me, non-soldier me, doing cavalry stuff. When you're on cavalry horses who have been drilling and drilling and working together, and you especially see this on a movie set when these guys have been doing, basically doing cavalry stuff for weeks and weeks and weeks together, the horses don't even need the riders after a while. Yeah, they will they will respond to the commands. They will form up. They will charge at another army. Not all of those shots in the movies are, okay, now we're going to film the Union guys coming this way, now we're going to film the Confederate guys going this Sometimes they film big old wide shots of, of clashes mm-hmm. of two different forces, and the horses are fine with that. They're fine at charging at each other. They don't flinch or run away or have a fit. No. Well, one other thing to keep in mind is that with few exceptions, most cultures, their war horses are stallions. Stallions do not have a problem attacking another horse. They do not have a problem attacking another rider. Um, they don't have a problem attacking a man on foot. Mm-hmm. Stallions are a whole different breed. Mm-hmm. And people are scared to death of stallions because most of the stallions they're used to are brought out of the stall to, you know, to procreate. And, and if you only it. got to come out of your room once a, you know, once a month to, in order to breed, you'd probably get pretty excited too. War horses, like the Mexicans t- today, train, mm-hmm. they, they'll only ride stallions. Mm-hmm. And those stallions are really, really well trained. They will stand there when they're told to. You can have a mare in heat walk by and they won't do anything because right. they are trained. Mm-hmm. And once you get on that horse and you tell him to do something, he does it. And he does it aggressively. Yeah. And the these horses, in fact, the... Um, the treatises I've read from the 15th and 16th century, they're all talking about what a stallion will do. That if you want a, if you want a horse that will charge, you're using a lance. You want a horse that charges. It has to be a stallion. Mm-hmm. You can use geldings for lesser work, mm-hmm. like using pistols. If you're charging right. the other guys using pistols. You can use a gelding. Well, there were horses, and there were horses, and there were horses. I mean, when you start getting up into the Middle Ages, when you start seeing more of what we think of as cavalry, you had your saddle horses mm-hmm. for getting from one place to another. You had your baggage horses mm-hmm. for carrying servants yeah. and carrying pack animals and things like that. Then you had your horses that you, were trained to go into horses. battle. Your, your big old war horses. And yeah. they, they were all trained for different things. Yep, and those war horses were expensive. One of the things he doesn't point out is that cavalry is extraordinarily, it's hideously expensive. Well, he never really gets to real cavalry. He sort of stops at the Roman saddle. But even with the Romans, it's hideously expensive. Nobody puts that kind of money into something that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Why bother? If it doesn't work, if it's as bad as he says it was, why would people put the time, effort, and treasure into it? So when do we first see the use of what we would think of as a fully developed cavalry? Um... Certainly the Romans had that. Um, They used it primarily as scouting, but also they, um, um, well, actually before then, uh, Alexander, Alexander on Bucephalus, he did cavalry charges, uh, full on cavalry charges with his companions. And his, his horse Bucephalus was his, his, his companion from childhood. Um, And, they would do cavalry charges, shock cavalry charges. What are they using? Are they using spears? Spears, generally, because you want to get your weapon in front of your horse. Okay. If you have just a sword, it's kind of hard. Ah. But another thing to keep in mind is that the horse itself is also a weapon. It, it, <laughs> it's a big one. And uh, Jack Hayes, who was a 
Uh, he's captain of the Texas Rangers in the 1840s. He was the colonel of the first Texas Mounted Volunteers in the Mexican War. He was an amazing, amazing cavalryman. Uh, fought the Comanches, you name it, Mexico, you name it. Uh, he said he told his troopers before a battle, he said, let the bone and muscle of your horses be your weapon. You charge into them and you knock over their horses with your horse. The American horses were bigger and stronger than the Mexican horses, and they could just charge in there and knock them over. And that was one of the things. And the French did that with their big horses uh, in the Middle Ages. The English in the uh, Napoleonic Wars, the English cavalry, even their light cavalry, tended to have bigger horses than the French heavy cavalry because by that time, the late Napoleonic Wars that French had killed off so many of their horses in battle, they were having to make do with somewhat smaller horses. So even English light cavalry with their big horses could bowl over. Didn't you accidentally knock somebody else over from your horse uh, on a movie set? Yeah, that was Carl Luthen, and uh, he was on the far side of a tank that I was charging around on Rambo 3, and my horse, that polo pony who didn't mind running into things, and we... Man, smack dab into him, knocked his horse over and him down, and I went, did a somersault right over the top of him. Uh, he, oops. Oops. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it, and neither was he. So anyway, that was kind of fun. So, yeah, I can. So you have personal experience with knocking mm-hmm. other horses over. Another thing I want to point out that Lindy Beige ignores is that people are afraid of horses. Yeah. And we've done experiments doing Renaissance military maneuvers uh like at our, our um the old um what was it the school, uh, of, the school of the renaissance soldier um and these infantrymen with their pikes and muskets and stuff um they had no idea we could move so fast they had no idea and they could feel the rumble of the earth and this is when i, I only had i think the most i ever had there was 20 horses um, but usually with like 16 or 12 or 16 horses, mm-hmm. they could feel in their through their feet the rumble of the charge. And horses move fast. And Which is why they make, they're great for scouting. Like you say, in early cavalry, mm-hmm. they were using they were them. To, scouting. They did that all through up through the 19th century and into the 20th century. In World War II. Cav is great for scouting. Germans, were, Germans yeah. and Russians were still using uh, cavalry for scouting. The United States Army used cavalry for scouting in Italy with the 10th Mountain Division in 1944. Uh So horses are really handy for this kind of thing when you can't get vehicles there. So what's the difference between heavy and light cavalry? It's primarily in their um, what their job is. Okay. Light cavalry is primarily their duty is scouting. Okay. Scouting and screening, making they're looking for the other army and they're making sure the other guy's cavalry can't find their army. Ah. So there's clashes, but it's with other light cavalry. It's usually swords and or carbines and things like this. Heavy cavalry's job, in the more modern sense, is to charge, whether at the other guy's cavalry or more importantly at the other guy's infantry. With the with the goal to break up the line. To, yes. Break through the line. Break to break their formation. Okay. Uh, the really best examples of this come from the 16th century when the um, infantry was actually learning how to withstand cavalry by using these 18-foot spears called pikes. The Swiss had developed this as sort of a, a, a mo- more modernized version of the Greek phalanx. And they would drop down these pikes to keep cavalry away because most horses will shy away from, from this. The French cavalry, on the other hand, had trained their horses for this, and the French cavalry had armored horses. Mm. And the front, the petrol, which is up in the front of the horse, looks like a cow catcher on a steam engine for a real good reason. Ouch. It's to deflect those pikes. Mm -hmm. These were fully armored horses. Some of them had even armored legs. Most of them didn't have armored legs. Yeah, that's complicated. Yeah, but... You know, this whole idea of, like, from Braveheart, oh, step aside and cut its legs off. Yeah, and then you'll get stomped on by the horse next to that one. It right. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Which is why when you're moving, again, back to that keeping your line and right. keeping your line tidy, if you are a nice, tidy line, you are unstoppable. And it was, uh, 
as one author, English author, said, full career. The last 60 yards you go at full career. And you've got, say, a 1,500-pound horse, 12 to 1,500-pound horse, wearing 100 pounds of armor with a 150-pound man on wearing another 75 pounds of armor. You've got a lot of weight there. You've got a 18-foot, 15 to 18-foot lance. And he charges in. First off, most sane people throw down their pike and run. Uh, it was only like the Swiss who would stand for it, and even they would get slaughtered occasionally. These horses would charge in, and yeah, plenty of them would get killed. Plenty of the men and horses that charged into these pike phalanxes would get wounded or killed or whatever. Plenty of them didn't. Yeah. And when you get this big horse a stallion who's really annoyed and his blood is up and he's got big hooves that have big iron shoes on them. Mm -hmm. And if anybody has ever heard of or seen the, the Spanish school uh, of Lipitzaner horses. Oh, the Lipitzaner stallions. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and in Vienna, they travel around. Those horses do something that's called airs above ground where they jump up in the air and they strike out in four different directions with their hooves. And that's what these horses would do. The guy on horseback, the knight, his job is to protect the horse at this point. And let the horse do his job. The horse does his job. The horse is kicking in four directions, and he's biting the faces off of the men in front of him. Oh, yeah. I've, I've heard stories of, you know, these war horses grabbing guys by the throat, ripping their yes. throats out. And, yes. And just, the, yeah, the horse himself. The horse is the he's, weapon. He's not just a vehicle. He is, right. He's a... He is the he's the weapon. Yeah. The man is just defending the horse from some Swiss halberdier to keep him from cutting the horse's head off. Or so something. if you've got a guy on a horse with a sword or a mace, it's not that he's fighting other soldiers with that sword and mace necessarily. He's 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 not an offensively right. using that weapon. He's defensively primarily using that at that weapon. point. Yes, when he's in the the press of the infantry, and these guys are doing their utmost to get the hell away. I don't want to be there. And you've I've got, been kicked by a horse. <laughs> yeah. And imagine a horse that really means it. Yeah. And you have, say, a dozen or two dozen horses doing their bit within this square formation of, say, four, three or 4,000 guys. It, it was only the Swiss who could maintain the integrity of their, their formation within that. Just through some kind of amazing training. Amazing training and yeah. just stubbornness. Huh. Uh, the Germans would just evaporate. The French wouldn't even be there. Uh, the English said, would say, no, we're not doing this. And so then the Italians, yeah, they wouldn't even show up for that. Now, at some point, we get firearms. We right. have the development of firearms the, and the adoption of, of large-scale adoption mm -hmm. of firearms into the military. When did this happen and how does it affect cavalry? It started happening um, actually as early as early 1400s, oh. uh, the Hussites in modern-day Czech Republic, Bohemia, were uh, a uh, dissident religious group uh, following the uh, teachings of John Wycliffe, actually, and, and Johann Hus, or Jan Hus. Anyway, they actually introduced firearms, and what they would do um, was they would take their Wagenbergs, they'd have wagons, and literally circle the wagons when either German or Hungarian cavalry showed up, and they'd shoot at them with crossbows and, and small arms, uh, pre-enacting many a Western film. Uh -huh. They became firearms became really important on the battlefield by a bit before 1500, and uh, they didn't really affect cavalry much, though. The thing is that most of the firearms in use uh, were fairly short range. They were devastating at. 50 yards, mm. even 100 yards. But um, a horse, a man on horseback in armor, both of them in armor, if he's 200 yards away, he's pretty much immune. Now, at this point, though, are you using artillery to break up these giant lines of heavy cavalry? No. Or not? No, because the artillery was usually way too difficult to maneuver around. Okay. Uh, now, the French, who had a, had developed a marvelous train of artillery towards the end of the Hundred Years' War by the Brothers Bureau, um, they could maneuver their artillery around so that the standard French technique was you have this huge uh, assemblage of infantry 
You threaten them with your cavalry so that they have to keep a tight formation. Otherwise, you just run them down like a bunch of frightened pullets. But then while you're threatening them with their, your cavalry, you play bowling pins with your artillery. Mm. And at the Battle of Novara, and it was 1515, that's exactly what the French did with the Swiss. Huh. And they they just slaughtered the Swiss. Didn't we do an episode on Lance to Pistol? Yes. Okay, yep. I'll put that in the show notes, and that yep. gets into a lot more detail about the transition from the Lance but to Pistol. But the thing was, though, that as far as firearms really becoming important with cavalry was by the, about the, the 1540s. Uh, when the wheel lock pistol was developed. And one of these days, Gordon's Gun Closet will do an episode on the wheel lock and the development thereof. But it was the wheel lock pistol that drove the armored knight from the field of battle. The lance, the couched lance, was just, it was a single shot weapon too. So this was nothing new to have just a single shot weapon in your hand. One uh, one of the commentators of the day, uh, Francois de Lanneau, said that it would be a miracle if anyone was killed with a spear or a lance these days because the armor was so good. When was he writing? Uh, in the f- 1570s and 80s. Okay. And um, what he did say, though, was pistols are great because say you have a 15-foot lance and you're coming up against a guy with a pistol. Well, his pistol will only pierce your armor at the range of about 15 yards not 15 feet, about 15 yards. But even if you wait till you're 15 feet away, you still outrange him. And if it punches through his armor, which it will do, the lance will not necessarily, you win. Mm-hmm. And while the heavy cavalry, the French-style heavy cavalry with full-armored men on fully-armored horses, they could sit out of the range of musketeers... And then charge in, mm. and, you know, a volley goes off and they could charge in and within a matter of seconds be on top of the infantry. They couldn't avoid the pistoliers. Yeah. And the pistoliers could, could basically harry them wherever. So they were the ones, it was pistoliers who basically defeated the knight in shining armor. So when was the last use, real use of horse cavalry on this planet. Um, let's see. The last one that I know of was what two thousand two <laughs> or three when the uh, well that'll US be the special next, forces that's the next question. <laughs> but what you know when was the when, basically when was the end the the last of the heyday of, of what we think of as horse cavalry World I mean, War II. I was okay. The Russians and the and the Germans used vast numbers of cavalry. Uh, the Russian the the Germans not so much the Wehrmacht the regular army, the Hires, Hires but they, um, they, the SS, who recruited a lot of Ukrainians and Croatians and stuff like that, who are still horsemen, uh, there were whole divisions of Cossacks working for the Germans. Oh, Cossacks. And they were fighting against divisions of Cossacks working for the Soviets. And again, mostly for scouting, but they were still carrying. They were carrying rifles, pistols, submachine guns, and sabers. They're still so, carrying. So the sabers. 1940s are basically you'd start transitioning out of horse cab right. into mechanized. Right now, I know because my brother's father-in-law, Bob Garrison, was there on the Chosin Reservoir in 19 in 1950. Uh, the Chinese did a cavalry charge against the Marines on Chosin Reservoir. Wow! And of course, the Marines slaughtered them. Said in the middle of the night, though everybody went out on the out on the ice, and were pulling ponies back to eat, oh, and sure. uh, sort of had a uh, it was an unofficial ceasefire. The Chinese would get one, and Marines would take another, and they just sort of ignored the, the fact that the other guys were out there. But um, you know, because everybody was starving. Well, there's an episode of History Files, The Frozen Chosen. The Frozen Chosen, absolutely. Yeah. I've known several of those guys. Yeah. So, and then again, of course, you briefly mentioned today uh-huh. as in right this minute there are still pockets of cavalry being used in the mm-hmm. world and not just the the mongols for right their... well the chinese army has mm-hmm. several divisions the russians still have several divisions uh the united states army special forces used um cavalry or mounted men in support of the northern alliance in the first the opening phases of our war in afghanistan 
Uh, in fact, they literally specifically recruited special forces guys who had been cowboys or grown up in the West who knew how to ride because those guys, those Afghans would respect them if they knew how to ride already. Makes sense. So um, the last American cavalry charge, the last true cavalry charge in U.S. history was by the 26th Cavalry, the Philippine Scouts, in the Philippines in 1942. And uh, a young American officer, white officer of the of the Philippine Scouts, a guy by the name of Ed Ramsey, who I was enormously honored to be able to meet, um, led that charge. It was a pistol charge, mounted pistol charge with 45 automatics, and it's one platoon, and they smashed a Japanese battalion that was cross in the process of crossing a river. And they knocked that battalion back across the river. They, they gave the American army another day to retreat. Unfortunately, of course, they ended up in Bataan, and it was a disaster anyway. Mm. But, but, they bought, but they bought their side some time. They bought their side some time. And uh, every man and horse came out of that charge wounded, but they did their job. Awesome. That, Awesome. Okay. Well, I think we've gone pretty long today, as I kind of suspected we would. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you so much um, you for for answering all our questions. I have plenty more. In I here. know you do. There's always <laughs> more to talk about when it comes to this kind of thing. And if anybody listening right now has questions or disagreement over something, you know where to find us. You can get a hold of us at uh, historyfilesshow at gmail.com, or you can log on to the SciCon History Files or SciCon Slack channel. Get a hold of us that way. We're, uh, History Files is on Twitter. You can find us there, history underscore files. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Gordon, you bet. for answering and being my guinea pig today. Show notes for this episode can be found at sicon.fm slash thf67. And many of our episodes have supplemental entries over at Gordon's History Ramblings blog. If you enjoy this show, be sure to check out the other amazing podcasts over at SciCon. And we wouldn't be able to do this without your support. If you'd like to help us defray some of the costs of producing a show like this, head on over to our store at Zazzle and pick up a mug or a t-shirt or uh, check out SciCon's Patreon page. And that about wraps it up for this week. Well, thank you very much again for joining us. And join us again next week for another exciting episode of The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm thf. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.